I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Hey, welcome everybody once again to another edition of I-94 here on Lumpen Radio. My name, as always, is Mr. Jamie Trecker, and I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Hey, Jamie. And Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning. And today, we are thrilled to be welcoming the author of the new book. It is in my hand. Unfortunately, this is radio, not television, so you can't see it. But it is the book Three Women, and we are joined by Lisa Tadeo, calling us from the bucolic wilds of Connecticut. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm good. How well? How, thanks for having me. No, this is wonderful. Thanks so much for being with us. I mean, this book um, has really created, first of all, a splash. So congratulations on that. Uh, it's received rapturous reviews. It's been written up all over the place. Uh, New York Times bestseller as well. Yeah, I mean, con first of all, congratulations. That's just an outstanding achievement. And we're always super happy when we see uh, booksellers actually being able to sell books. This is a great thing in this mm -hmm. day and age. Did <laughs> totally. you expect that when you started with this project? Because you were working on it for, for several years, uh, and it seems like an unlikely bestseller in a way. Can you take us through a little bit about your process when you decided to confront this subject? Yeah, I um, I had read uh, Gates Elise's Thy Neighbor's Wife, which was published in 1980, and it was a sort of pulse taking of uh, sexuality in um, in the U.S. during that time. And I I, I I read it, I liked it, but it felt to me like a very male take on a subject that I had never read a book about female desire written from a female perspective. And so that was kind of the genesis of my wanting to write this book. And I didn't really know where to start. So I drove across the country six times. I posted signs up all over the country on like gas station uh, windows and um, in cars to go uh, in barbecue joints, uh, just, uh, just basically everywhere. Um, and then the first thing I did for it was to move to rural Indiana, uh, which was kind of a, a weird move, but the Kinsey Institute was there where they study sex and I thought that being close to that that sort of um, to, to the to the sort of um, epicenter of where one studies that would be a good place to start can you visit the Kinsey Center I didn't know that still was uh, around yeah I, I know what it is but I didn't know that it still existed no it does it still exists it's very I mean it's it's very it's a very um, clinical place there's just it's it's all scientists who social scientists and regular scientists and biologists working to really um, figure out how everything works and the reasons that we act the way that we do when it comes to desire. Can we talk a little bit also about the way you wrote this book? Because it is a work of literary nonfiction, which is an interesting genre. We were talking about it among us uh, before the show started. And, you know, it's, it's not a genre that was really very popular until the 70s or 80s and mm -hmm. now you know they're teaching it in schools but it's also a genre that's you know had its fair share of detractors you know there's something yeah. a little suspicious about totally. the novelistic <laughs> techniques about something that's supposed to be factual C can you talk a little bit mm -hmm. about why you made that choice uh and you know later on in the, the show i do want to talk about the voices you use but I, i'd really be curious about that because i know that you have a background as a journalist you were a sports writer and uh, among other things and I, i'd really love to know why you you took that approach with this particular topic sure so i had been writing um i'd been writing um 
uh, nonfiction for Esquire and New York Magazine. So that was how I'd made my living for the past um, 15 or so years. But I had always written fiction and actually my novel's forthcoming next summer. So I I've never stopped writing fiction. I did not want to write a book of nonfiction that I didn't want to read. Uh, I'm not so much of a consumer of nonfiction, so I wouldn't necessarily read a book on a topic that I wanted to read about if it weren't written by a, um, a writer whose words I admired. So I kind of started from that that place of wanting to to write something that I'd want to read. And the second thing about that and the way that I told it was that I wanted the people to, the readers to be as inside these women's heads as possible because I knew that, um, I knew that being able to really see the specific lives of people that spe specificity is at times the only way we can really empathize. And I think that combined with your empirical research, driving across the country six times, one of the things we talk about a lot on the show is that a lot of journalism these days isn't heavily researched. And I think, to me, that's why this book was so popular. A, it was written in a very readable way, and also that you did meticulous research um, you know, with three different women in three different places. And... To me, that's that's very impressive. I mean, how many years did it take total to uh, get this written? It was just about a little under a decade. Oh wow! You know, when I was I was reading, I I was thinking of an old. I think it's a an Emerson line in one of his essays or something about how um, with a lot of great literature, you read a sentence and it's it feels like something you already thought but you could never put into words. That to me is how mm -hmm. it, how it felt reading some of the characters but then you know I take a step back and I, I realize kind of the artifice of what it is it's you talking it's not them did did these three women read the book and kind of have that experience like oh yeah I guess I, I was thinking that but I didn't put it into those words um, well, I had the book professionally fact-checked, uh, and I also sent the book to all three women long before it was going to even be a proof so that they could say, you know, I didn't, I don't feel that way, I didn't mean that, etc. And surprisingly, none of them um, wanted anything excised, but they did want to add things. So it was really oh. an amazing process, and they were a part of it in every way. Um, in terms of, you know, they did say the things that are in the book. Um, the the things that I think is uh, the reason that I think it's hard to sort of understand that is because I had spent years with each of them, texting with them, talking with them, going to lunch with them, going shopping with them. So when you do that much um, empirical research, that much, and not even research, but kind of even though I always had a tape recorder or was taking notes, I also was having a relationship with them because it would be absurd to, to just say it was it was just the sort of clean you know interviewer interviewee relationship because after a couple of years it becomes obviously something more um so it was, it was like having it was like you know talking to your friend yeah. for several years your best friend whomever and only listening to them and not saying anything about yourself at all so the conversation is almost entirely 98 percent or so one way so having that much that much time, that much space to ask the same question numerous times, you you get something like that. I just think that 
because many people don't spend that much time on a human being, period, let alone a quote unquote normal human being that it would seem, you know, like it didn't really like it was more more uh, an overview than an actual granular specific these women talking. I have a passage that was on uh, page 19 from Maggie's story that I think ties into what Mike said really well. And it's it goes as follows. He's the sort of man who will never contract an STD, no matter how many filthy women he sleeps with. And at a state fair, he will not leave without multiple cheap stuffed animals. His arms will be pink and blue with victory. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, it, like that's, they, that's, I, I did. Did she say that, or is that something that you intuited based on things she said? Because to me, it it just comes across so clear yeah it's like it's exactly what you were saying i think lisa it's like talking with one of your good friends and they would mm-hmm. make an observation like that and i like when i'm reading something and you read something and you're like oh i could have thought that if that sense. <laughs> yeah i mean with that in particular she told me about you know a time that he had gone to a fair and he told her about you know having come home with things for his kids and feeling so great and she told me how much that meant to her it was like an attractive thing you know when it came to stds she said she felt safe with him because he was only with his wife that he was he'd only ever been with his wife or so he told her so you know it was something that she never she knew he'd never had anything he asked her how many sexual partners she'd had made her feel guilty asked her questions about you know whether she was clean or not so you know going and it's just kind of a specific going over and over Everything like that, um, knowing the details of someone else's life told through the person that's obsessed with them. We should also back up a little bit and talk yeah. a little bit about who the, the women in your book are. And you, you interviewed more women and then settled on these three to concentrate on. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. So, so the main characters of this story are a woman named Maggie, a woman named Lena, and a woman named Sloan. And each of their cases is is fairly unique, and please correct me. I'm just going to give a little kind of potted recital for yeah. the for the listeners, but please feel free to jump in. Maggie um, has a relationship with a teacher, uh, and that is going to end up in a court case. And um, she's a student. Uh, she's a student, and I'm uh, I'm I'm not going to spoil it, but I'm going to say things don't work out very well. Uh, Lena goes through a a breakup in her own marriage, and then uh, has a relationship with an ex who is. I don't believe this is spelling anything, but he's kind of a toad. Um, and Sloane <laughs> is an upper, uh, she struck me as a very upper class woman whose husband uh, brings home other men and women for her to sleep with while she watches. And then uh, it turns out that one of these partners has not been as forthcoming with their own partner as uh, they might have been. And this backfires somewhat on on Sloane. Um, these are three fairly different uh instances of both female desire, but I also felt female power and powerlessness. Um, the two people in particular, I would say Lena and Maggie, were, were pretty interesting to me. And Well, in both of them, early sexual experiences, one was a rape and one was statutory rape, right. which, you know, is very common in our society. But when your sexuality is developed in that fashion, it's got to skew the way you think about things. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one Maggie actually her case had personal resonance to me. Um, there was a case when I was in high school of a theater um, 
teacher who was molesting students at the school. And uh, this happened to a very good friend of mine. Um, he was arrested uh, and uh, obviously kicked out of the school. But her, her case uh, resonated quite a bit with me because I remember my friend telling me about this relationship when we were both you know, 15 and 16 years old mm-hmm. in high school. Could you talk a little bit about, if, we, if you don't mind if we start with Maggie, talk yeah. a little bit about her case and her experience and why this was an important story to tell in the first place. Well, I was in a um, coffee shop in Medora, North Dakota. I was researching this other possible story about a group of women being um, who were illegally in the country being trucked into the local oil fields to have sex with the men who worked there. And this was kind of early on when I really don't didn't know what the sort of book would look like. I never actually did until closer to the end. But um, while I was there, I read uh, a local newspaper. And in that paper, it had the story of Maggie, who had just brought charges against her t- teacher, her former teacher, for an alleged relationship when she was underage. And the jury had seen it in a way that I was that quite shocked me, especially since there were these hundreds of hours of phone calls after 11 p.m. and midnight, and some most many of them in the direction of the teacher to her. So I drove to Fargo the next day. I called her house, spoke to her mother, and explained what I was doing. Man, the reason Maggie's story was so important to me was because, and I felt differently about it than I felt about the others because with Maggie's I really felt like telling her story to a wider audience would do something for her and I explained to her and this was way before me too so it was kind of a leap of faith on on her part and and it was kind of a a hopeful very hopeful um, idea on my part but I said you know your town does not believe you. And I I just think that a wider audience of people in different parts of the country and maybe hopefully the world will feel differently. And so that was a real, um, for me, the coup of what's happened with the book and the fact that women from across the world, from Kenya, you know, just rush everywhere, basically, have written to Maggie, have written to me telling both of us how Maggie's story has resonated, has helped them feel unalone. Has anything changed with her case? Um, no, no, nothing has changed. There's a stat, they're past the statute of limitations, but oh, okay. you know, that being said, I'm not sure if it, there are some things that could, that could change things. Um, that being said, you know, it's up to Maggie sure. to make those moves. And I think she's had a lot, um, in terms of all of this she went through that yeah. maybe it's better for her to like, kind of let it go. But the fact that, you know, the book has given her this wider audience to get just, you know, put her voice on this on this bigger stage has been really, really, I just, you know, she's a social worker now. She's helping young women like herself. She's doing great. And I'm not saying like the book did that. I mean, her telling her story and the bravery in taking that that leap of faith and hoping that the country and the world at large would believe. No, I'll tell you, that's comforting to hear because her, yeah. her story in particular for, for me was devastating yeah like it just dropped to a more intense stage of loneliness piece by piece for her and you know we don't know at the end of the book exactly where she's at i certainly didn't know that she had gotten that kind of reply from women all over the world and i I hope that's some kind of comfort to her 
Yeah, no, it's beyond. I mean, she is. She's been. She has told me that it's given her closure in a way she could never have expected. Oh, that's awesome. And a side note from that is that the um, Abby Wambach, who is her hero because she was Maggie used to play soccer and was great at soccer and then stopped because of what happened. Um, Abby posted a picture of herself reading the book and I wrote to her and said you know Maggie you're Maggie's hero and she wrote back publicly saying Maggie's my hero so you know things like that have been it's just I mean I could not have hoped for more it was exceeded my expectations and what and how Maggie would feel that's amazing let's pause for a second actually and let's hear a sample from the book and I did actually choose a selection from uh, Maggie's introduction and Maggie's trial. This is read, as always, by Shanna Van Volt, and we thank her. And I want to thank International Anthem Recording Company and Jamie Branch, who provided the backing music for this track. We're going to be back with Lisa in just a minute or so. During her sophomore year of high school, Maggie becomes an aunt to a baby girl named Emily. She's proud of how beautiful and happy the baby is. Sometimes it scares her how much the child likes her. If she walks away for a few seconds, the child screams. She's demoted from varsity to JV soccer. There are two new coaches, a man and a woman, replacing the old head coach who stepped down that year. The two new coaches pulled her aside after tryouts. In a dingy staff room at the high school, they stand shoulder to shoulder and say, listen, you're moving down. You have a great vision on the field, but you don't get the ball where it needs to go. She doesn't understand how both those things can be true. Meanwhile, other sophomores plus incoming freshmen are sent up to varsity. She is alternately indignant and humiliated. Maggie quits. This is how Maggie handles adversity. If someone criticizes her in the wrong way, not taking the time to tell her she is still worth something, she doesn't try to do better. She forsakes what she loves. She doesn't have advisors telling her to relax, to hang back, and to think it over. To work hard on JV and prove the coach is wrong. Her old man is strong but drunk. He has been trying to get a new job since being laid off from the one he's held his whole life, but he doesn't take the right steps. She knows the two new coaches think she's uppity. They think she doesn't know her place. Fargo doesn't like one of its own to get out of line. America wants you to pay your dues. Maggie sees only the unfairness everywhere. Then there are teachers like Mr. Nodal who knows how to talk to her. There are people out there who are like the trains in the distance, glorious and forward-moving and unswerving, and she wants to be one of these. But sometimes she falls on the sword of her own desire and lies there and repents too late and too incorrectly for anyone to want to save her. Did you continue to confide in Mr. Nodal as you went through high school after having had him as a freshman English teacher and then being in speech and debate and service learning and those sorts of things? You think Hoy's bushy mustache is decrepit. Skinny old people freak you out. They remind you of your dad's mom. When you were a kid, you always felt her turning a corner to find you in the middle of something sinful. Similarly, Hoy catches you off guard, often. He looks at you like you are an underperformer. You gained weight since high school. Maybe he knows his client is guilty. Probably he does. In any case, he looks at you like he is surprised that Aaron went for you. Sometimes you want to pull out pictures of yourself from back then, show people your smile, your little body. You want to tell Hoy he is an old creep. His wife has probably had more sex time headaches than any other woman in the history of Evanes' desire. I'm sorry, did I? Did you continue to confide in him about your experiences with an adult male in Hawaii over your junior? The prosecutor, John Byers, says, I'm going to object to that on relevance and rape shield. It is a terrible thing when you feel grateful that someone who is supposed to defend you finally begins to defend you. Rape shield means you can't ask an alleged rape victim about other sexual encounters. It means you can't try to prove that whore is her baseline. 
That selection we just heard was from the book Three Women by Lisa Tadeo, and we are speaking with her today live. She's coming to us from Connecticut. And the selection you just heard uh, was an interesting one to me because it indicates, illustrated is the word I'm looking for, I'm sorry, something about this book. You, you used a number of different voices in the book. It's written primarily in the third person. You do use second person at some times. But in Maggie's case, what was really fascinating to me, and it was one of the things I really liked about the book, all of a sudden during Maggie's case, there's another voice that comes in, which is the voice of the court. Uh, you know, you're, you're going along in her story and she's talking about it. And all of a sudden somebody comes in and says, objection, you know, this is, this is part of rape shield, uh, or objection, you know, this, this is not allowed. Yeah, or just ask a direct question. Absolutely. You know, and, and that to me was a really interesting thing in the book, both stylistically and, um, I found it very enjoyable, honestly. It was one of the things that really grabbed me and made Maggie's story, in a sense, more real because I felt I was kind of traveling along with Maggie and and all of a sudden you're jarred into this sense that, no, this, this is really real. This woman is actually on trial and she shouldn't be on trial, but but she is. You know what I mean? The, the, the scene has very much been reversed from what you would expect of a, a young girl that had said her teacher had sexually abused her. Mm-hmm. Well, not only that, uh, it's like before you get into that interjection, you're hearing the story from not only Maggie, but Maggie when she's 16 or yeah. 17. And so you're you're with her. Like what she says happened to her is so clear and real. It, it's the truth. But then when it segues into the court with and there, there's no quotation marks or anything, it just dives right in. And uh She's being accused, she's being framed. They're painting this picture of her as a troubled girl and she has kind of a rough background and she's rough around the edges. And it made me say like, hey, wait a minute. But then as you get further along, you get the town's point of view and it's just devastating. Well, even his wife, the teacher's wife. Oh God, yeah. When she testified, I was like, <laughs> you are like the most disgusting human <laughs> being. I mean, I well, get it. She was trying to defend her family, but I mean, it was, it was terrible. It was horrible. Because yeah. I was on Maggie's side, because I started with Maggie, and the book starts in the second person. It says you. It's, well, after the prologue, I think. It's Maggie's story starts with you. And so it's talking to me. I'm ad identifying with Maggie in the beginning. Well, I'm glad that you felt that way, because that was my intention. I, I felt specifically with Maggie's story that... You know, I was the most concerned with people not um, not believing her. So I felt that starting in the second person would make it difficult for someone to sort of have to climb their way out in order to not believe her. Um, so that was my goal with that. And yeah, I wanted at the same time, and what I said to Maggie at the start of all this was, you know, I'm going to tell the st your story from your point of view it is going to be your story but that also means that i'm going to tell the parts that you know if, if you were trying to tell your story as, as as you know you're a victim and he's the he's the devil I, we need to bring in the other parts of this that that people would say if we didn't so that was something that so that's why i wanted to do second person to start and then a kind of third person i wanted to give it a neutral court you know, um, law-like air because all of it was part of the story and I just wanted it to be completely gray in a way that would make people just really feel like they were in there. Have, have people written about Maggie's case since this book has come out? I mean, obviously, 
this has got to be part of the public record where she lives. Has there been any kind of follow-up in the local press about it? There was, you know, there was a couple of things, but not really that much. And I would have, I, I do know that the first day that the book came out, it was sold out and all of Fargo, North Dakota. So I I know that people read it and I know that there was a lot going on about it. But, uh, and I think that's just the fact that nobody really wrote about it in a sort of, you know, it's like a bigger way. I think it's because they knew that they had not been, that they had been partial to him and that now they were looking at the story from Maggie's point of view. And I feel like it was, it was, I think it might have made some of them, some who I spoke to that I, I asked some of the writers and the journalists who had written about the trial, why they had gone the way that they did, why it felt impartial. And then there were some others who said that they, they believed Maggie, but that they had pressure to put it in a certain way. And uh, it just was, it was shocking to me that it was not, um, it was, it was always trying to be uh, swept under the rug. It, this is kind of an outrageous analogy, but it reminded me of when OJ got off. Cause when I was reading Maggie's story, I was, <laughs> I was like, this guy did it. You know what I mean? And it was just like the yeah. same thing with that trial. And I thought her story yeah. was very believable. And I did want to say too, obviously if we get any of this stuff wrong please correct us we're three yeah. three dudes talking about women's sexuality so yeah. <laughs> yes we're not the we're not the arbiters well, of no, I appreciate, <laughs> it, it's funny i really appreciate that you guys are doing it because it's been i've been rarely um spoken men have rarely spoken to me about the book and i think that you know whenever they send a an interviewer any uh, anywhere from except for other countries like the um norway for example finland there's been it's been almost all men so i think it's interesting to see what um yeah i just think in these current times it's it's hard for it's hard to know what to say and how to broach it so anyway i appreciate you guys talking to me that's well, a that's a really interesting point actually yeah. I, I i was actually going to ask you so might as well ask you now have you found that your readership, I would assume that your readership would skew largely female, but I was going to ask you, have you met men that have read the book and have men engaged with the book? Because it seems to me something... Men should read this. Well, that's what I was going to yeah. say. It seems to be something that you should read. And I, I can understand there are some cultural reasons or some uncomfortableness about why a man wouldn't necessarily want to read it. But it, it seems that there are so many things in this book that if people did read it, maybe some of the bad behavior and uncomfortable conversations that we're having as part of the Me Too era or today in, in my other world where a prominent TV writer and comic book writer is being accused by 100 women of grooming and sexual harassment, maybe yeah. some of these things wouldn't be as so prevalent in our society. Uh, have men engaged with this book or, or are you surprised that they haven't? Um, you know, of the seven or so that have read it, I have engaged with about five of them. No, I'm kidding. Um, I, <laughs> I, uh, I, I have, you know, they've been, it's, it's been really, it's been interesting to talk to men um, because possibly there's less of them. It's been, it's not more interesting, but it's been really, uh, I've really valued hearing their perspectives. One of the best things that happened, one of the first men who read the book said that prior to having read it, he didn't realize how indifference could be so wounding and that was a really 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 uh, I guess it was one of the best things I could have hoped for because with Lena's story particular in particular this woman driving 
four hours to see this man for 30 minutes that you know um she she was just so she was just waiting for a text back and and she would have she would say hey you know can you what's going on and he wouldn't reply until a week or whenever later when he was ready to see her and she would have just been happy with him saying no you know I don't want to see you but to have it to be ghosted in essence was Mm -hmm. was worse and it made her feel like she didn't even exist in the world see I I identify with Lena more than did you Aiden in that one yeah that kind of crazy thinking yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I, I could really relate to that. And the reason I think this, two things. It was interesting what you said about people not covering the larger issue. I think you said, Lisa, reporters not covering the mm-hmm. larger issue because I think there are a lot of things that are being said in this book that are not said explicitly. Um, and it's because it's not didactic. So when you say, Jamie, that like we could all benefit from from reading this book, it's not in that like – finger-wagging teacher kind of way it's like it's just here's you experience it when you read this book if you read it honestly you experience these things and it it's what a good book does it can change you um so i found myself not feeling like i was being attacked as a man i found myself just identifying with emotions and empathizing with the women yeah and and not like i had a hard time empathizing with sloan but for sure lena and maggie yeah it, well, and it wasn't like I understand the plight of women in America now. It was just like, <laughs> you know, like I understand these emotions. I've been in these situations. And mm-hmm. is it going to turn around somebody who's like totally ignorant and doesn't read much and, you know, just buys their corn dogs and goes to Sunday church and falls asleep? Probably not. But I think people, <laughs> people who are confused about all these issues that are talking about that are upset about, you know, like, white male stuff being thrown around here like this is this is a great read mm-hmm. yeah i think so i did want to tell you. you too lisa we all the books we do on the shows uh someone has been had an interest in it and uh, mike actually picked this book but we we read all the reviews and then we're like oh this might be something we're interested in and at first i'll be totally honest i wasn't that interested to read it and then once i got into it i was like like i said earlier like men should read this book because it not only gives you uh, a perspective, but it's also, um, in Maggie's case, the the public perception, and then in Lena's case, you know, her high school experience was absolutely yeah. horrible uh, to read. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I, you know, I had a friend in high school that it wasn't quite the same situation, but it was similar, and and I ended up she ended up being my girlfriend for a long time, but I, I people get away. Uh, men often get away with taking advantage of women uh, when they're young. And the, the situation, like the one with Lena, she was not even sure, like, what happened exactly, you know. And it was, that was very difficult to read. We but, should talk more about Lena. Yeah, yeah we should. Well, we got a reading. So. We got to read, and we got to take a quick little break to remind people what station they're listening to and what the show is and who pays the bills. We are with the author, <laughs> Lisa Tadeo, uh, three women. Coming out of the break, in fact, let's play a little segment uh, from Lena. We'll do that, and that'll set up the next part of our conversation. You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM, Lumpen Radio, and this is I-94. And now back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. Like clockwork, the second Lena isn't thinking of him, he can feel it. 
Across a couple of Indiana State roads, he can sense the rain's loosening and he texts a frown face. She's just fallen asleep in her hotel room when the vibration jolts her awake. Why the long face, Aiden? What's wrong? She writes almost immediately. She thinks how good it must feel to be him. There must be a wonderful sensation of power in knowing that if he wants anything at all from her, all he has to do is touch a button. Maybe you have a pic to send me, Aiden writes. Lena does, in fact, have a whole album of prepared pictures for him. Two days ago in the tanning salon, she stood naked on the carpet with its brown lotion stains and the lime glow of the humming beds seeping out from other rooms held her broke-ass phone above her head and snapped a picture of her body. This is what she sends him now, praying the phone won't die before she gets a response and praying other people won't use up her battery by texting her because everyone who isn't Aiden is a barnacle on her leg. Aiden writes, A new hot pick would be nice. She's laughing at the same time because the more he wants from her, the better, and the more he is unimpressed, the more she wants to impress him. She sends him a picture of her haircut. He writes, sexy lingerie would be nice. She strips down to the black lace panties and push-up bra that she bought for him. She lies down on the bed and takes a few pictures of herself and sends the best one. Her mobile phone is dying, but she has an iPod with decent amount of battery life left. On the iPod, she can use Facebook Messenger to communicate with him, so she begs him to switch over. It's easy for him. He can access Facebook from his phone. Lena writes, please get on Facebook. My phone's dying. She didn't bring a charger. No matter how much she prepares to see him, the universe contrives to wreck something. At the last minute, one of her children will need a certain stuffed animal she put in the wash or her car won't start. She strips down to nothing in the hotel bed. If she's naked, he might sense her openness in the atmosphere. She closes her eyes and imagines that any moment he will knock on the door to room 517. She got that room, just in case. She was going to meet a friend in his neck of the woods for a drink. Then the friend canceled at the last minute, but Lena already had the room and the kids were with Ed, so she stayed over. She told Aiden where she was. She told him it must be less than 10 miles from his house. She knew it was a long shot that he would come and meet her, but it felt better to sleep closer to where he was sleeping anyhow. Please get on Facebook, she repeats. But he doesn't, and he doesn't write back. It seems the picture is enough. Lena tries to console herself with the idea that the picture of her is the last thing he looked at before he fell asleep. She tries to fall back asleep, but it takes her a long time. She's upset about how much money she spent on a hotel room for nothing. Welcome back to another edition of I-94 here. You're listening to 105.5 FM, Lumpen Radio. And just after the break, you heard a selection from Three Women, a new book out from Lisa Tadeo. We are speaking with her today. And that selection actually concerned the story of a woman named Lena. Lena uh, has had, um, I think it's fair to say, Lisa, a bad breakup. She left her husband. Uh, he was not um, a very affectionate person toward her. And after some some very negative things, she has fallen into kind of a hookup relationship with an old boyfriend. Uh, the segment that we heard was a story of her going and renting a hotel room and sending this man pictures. Uh, and just before your break, you were talking about this kind of behavior that he was doing, which was essentially not responding to her and, and ghosting her. Um, mm -hmm. And I read that story and uh, felt very... Um, it was very moving for me because uh, I think, you know, all of us have been in a situation where we, we have feelings for people and they're completely unrequited and they're probably mm -hmm. also completely unrealistic. Uh, I think there was a, a part of Lena's story where I, I, I wanted to kind of reach through the pages and grab her and go, you know, this guy oh, is not yeah. treating you very well. You know what I mean? This is not going to end well here for you. 
Um, but I will say at the end of her story, I did feel, and I don't know if anybody else here agrees with me, despite all the very negative things that happened to her, it seemed that she was going to a place where she was not going to put up with not being treated well in a relationship again. And she wasn't going to uh, put up with not having that affection and not having that romance and not having that sexual love in her life anymore, which struck me as a, a, a strange positive to come out of all this. I don't know if anybody else here agrees with me, but that was the way I kind of felt the arc of her character went. I was undecided. I wasn't sure. Is that, am I right, Lisa? Or was, I mean, can you give us any kind of insight? Yeah, I think that with Lena, um, a lot of people uh, have called her a victim, which I never and I never intended to sort of uh, have people think that or see her that way. Uh, I think that what happened with Lena is after having been raped as a young woman and then being bodily abandoned, in a sense, by her husband who refused to kiss her on the mouth for over a decade, um, she was finally uh, she was meeting this man with him. She had always been infatuated. They were having this amazing intimate encounters, at, at, you know, in, in this place called the river, which was this kind of hallowed ground for her. And she was more so than even being um, being with him intimately. She was reconnecting with her own body in an intimate matter. And she was seeing that she could have that again and that she wasn't going to live the rest of her life and just not um, not not experience any kind of joy or 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 self-worth when it came to how she felt as a as a being of desire so yeah i think that lena's and i also think that in, my, in terms of my having said that people called her a victim i don't believe she was a victim because she was going after this man she wasn't this man wasn't saying you know come he wasn't holding a gun to her head and telling her she had to do anything. She, in fact, had to coerce him several times, not coerce necessarily, but um, talk him into seeing her because uh, she wanted that and she wanted to drive four hours for 30 minutes. Yeah. And she was sort of, you know, finding a babysitter at the last second for her kids, changing cars from one car to the other to not put too many miles on, on one of the leases to sort of take all of that as a woman without much money without without that much agency or not understanding what her agency was to do all that was to me so uh so heroic in terms of what she did for herself and whether or not one judges what what she is as a mother and a wife which i don't think it's fair to judge someone else uh i don't especially someone who's not whose life is in no way affecting your own uh so i i think she was a protagonist in in terms of her own story. I think she was a hero in, in a way of her own narrative. And yeah, I do. I agree with you. I think that I think that what happened for her really shifted her from a kind of deadened place to someplace where she felt alive. Yeah, I felt Lena was resilient. I did want to just bring up a passage. It's on page 177. And it says, on April 13th, some people's mother died. Some people's children ran away from home. Some people moved to another continent to start a new life. For Lena, April 13 marks the day when she felt loved. And for me, she was resilient and she was chasing love, basically. Uh, that's the way I looked at it. Um, and from, you know, from her background in high school and then this uh, intimately Baron, I don't know how else to say it. That's good. <laughs> and and uh, marriage, you know, I, I, I agree with you 100%. I didn't look at her as a victim, although 
when you introduce her, you talk about how she's more of a sticker collector than a French kisser, and then she gets sexually assaulted by three men. That was really difficult to read. When I thought of her as a victim, I thought of her as a victim to herself, almost the way mm-hmm. you think of an addict, because there are moments... Yeah, she's she's in unknown territory when she's leaving her husband. She's searching for something she doesn't know exactly what it is, and this guy, Aiden, is... is her shot and there are moments after she has it you know where she has this self-discovery about her body and about pleasure and about things that she wants that are maybe taboo in in the place she lives and um like almost evil to the perception of of uh the moralistic and ethical perceptions mm-hmm. of people in her town um she starts to have these glimpses of what aiden is objectively you know like she talks mm-hmm. about it with this group of women like he's Superman or something, mm-hmm. um, and that, but she starts to have these flashes of eh, he he does these pretty lame things, and, yeah. and even after she has these recognitions, she like she gets really desperate, like she begs him to come see her when he's kind of indifferent or slouching her off. You know, it it seemed like addictive behavior, self destructive behavior, and that's when yeah, I was like, I, ah, I, I think. No, and I totally, you know, I think that the addictive aspect, that's a really great word to use because I think that it was that. And I think that she does have an addictive personality. She doesn't drink or do drugs, but that her addictive personality, she had an addiction to feeling loved and and wanted. But I think that that's part of, you know, we can call it, it's just the same way as people who do drugs often have had this, you know, something terrible or bad or, or difficult happened in there. I was reading the study of heroin and almost everyone who does it has something that obviously they're trying to escape from. And the sort of deadening aspect of heroin does that for them. And for Lena, she was addicted to love because what it was doing was filling in all the holes that had been shot up in her by every single thing that happened in her life that none of which she really was able to control. And and this was the one thing she could control. And, you know, whether or not it was yeah. being addicted to it in a way that was quote unquote unhealthy, it was still under her control, whereas everyone else everything else had not been. And I don't think her her peer group, the women, seemed also to be using her in a way as well. Oh yeah. I, I, I really yeah. felt that they were not exactly uh what somebody in her situation really needed. They seemed to be wanting to just milk her for... They wanted the goods, baby. They wanted all the bachinche, and they did, they, but they yeah. were not really, you know, <laughs> really willing to help her out at all. They were they were using her as, as much as Aiden was using Yeah, the cheese may. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, what I... Th- oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say that one of the things that I found with the discussion group was that they were so interested in trying to help her when it came to getting her away from the situation with her husband but when she was happy and she came to the room feeling just loved and wanted they didn't want to to hear that anymore and I think it was on Seinfeld uh, where George once said uh, to Jerry you know nobody wants to hear about a happy relationship come back and talk to me when it's you know it's going south (laughs) and I think that that was really true of of what happened there. And I think it it is hard, especially for these women who, as you said, were sort of like anything that they did outside of the morality, the sort of the strictures of of life in in small town Indiana would be 
uh, excoriated for those things. And what um, what they did to Lena was sort of, you know, you don't get to have that happiness. You don't get to sleep with a man that you like. You have a husband. You have, you know, children. You have a responsibility to being sad for the rest of your life, if that's, that's what it means. that's in all three stories. Yeah, it, yeah, that is a thread in all three stories. And I do want to get to Sloan before yeah. we just completely run out of time here. But I, I did want to ask you, Lisa, before we go any further, this strikes me as being a very emotionally draining and demanding project. I mean, how did, how did you cope with this? Because, uh, frankly, if I was in your shoes and I was doing some of this, I would have found this to be a, a real roller coaster. I, I would have real difficulty um, kind of absorbing a lot of the stuff that these, these women went through. Uh, was this a difficult thing for you to do? Uh, you know, it's it was a decade of my life and it was a job in a sense. It was also forming relationships and it wasn't a, it wasn't a job in the sense of like I got to do interesting things. I got to know people. I got to take, you know, quote unquote selfies of this of Lena in in, in stores so that she could post them on Facebook. I, I got to do things that were beyond a sort of uh, normal job. And I was grateful for that. In terms of the roller coaster of the emotions of it, yes, it was difficult. At the same time, I had had a number of my own grief and suffering so that when and when I think one of the reasons that they might have been more open to talking to me was because I was very open to understanding how how something very painful could inform one's everyday life. So in a sense, my talking to them and listening to them was also cathartic to me because I felt, and this is going to sound like, you know, just, uh, I don't know, self something that I don't mean it to be. It was helping me to feel like I was helping them and it made me feel good. I don't I think, think there's anything negative about that. I think that's very honest, actually. Yeah. I, I don't think there's anything negative about that at all. So let's <laughs> let's talk quickly about Sloan, though. I know, Jeremy, that was the character, not the character, the person, uh, that you had the most difficult with. This is what happens when you're writing about literary nonfiction. You, you start. Well, I have continue. to. I have to. You know, I do have this bias when people seem to be wealthy and entitled. Mm -hmm. And I, I always think, like, how can they have problems? And I yeah. know that's completely false, and it's a false narrative I tell myself. But it, it's just that it's. I don't know. It's like the whole. You know the the struggling artist in Brooklyn that still but pays five thousand dollars for rent. You know that kind of thing, and it's just those type of people. I, I have a very hard time having empathy for. I think Lisa wrote uh, focused on the kind of counter narrative to that. Yeah. Sloan was aware of all that stuff, and she oh absolutely, but and I she hated herself. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. So um, I actually found her to be, in a weird way, the most um, approachable character in a lot of ways. And the reason was is I, I felt she was being judged for, for doing something that doesn't bother anybody else, really. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, and at the end of it, when she's confronted by the wife of another husband, you know, instead of kind of looking at the relationship that that person was in and, and really having a good look at themselves, they directed anger at somebody else that really was involved. But it's hard to say that they were, you could blame them in a way you know what i mean i find it i found it to be she she seemed to be caught in a very kind of hypocritical situation and i found that mm -hmm. to be um very interesting and i think her her class also kind of 
played into that as well. You know, the fact that she was a, a wealthier, upper-middle-class white woman. You know, the fact that she was in a relationship like that, I think probably was considered extremely distressing for other people of that class. That's something that people of the Ladies Who Lunch segment might not do, um, which is <laughs> yeah. totally false. You know what I mean? People's yeah. sexuality is people's sexuality. And, and so I actually had a little more, you know, truck with that. I, I felt that she was really getting a raw deal uh, in a lot of ways. And Lisa, I don't know if you if you could speak to that or comment on it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that that's, that's the thing that um, many people had the same difficulty with is the, the upper middle class of it, uh, the entitled aspect of it. Uh, like, um, I believe Jeremy said the, the, uh, the, she did not, uh, she was aware, she was self-aware. She knew that she had a lot of things. But when it came, when it comes to anything, when it comes to anything that causes pain, it's important to remember that pain is relative. And I have many friends who's who have lost dogs, and those dogs have meant more to them than someone else's parents might have meant uh, in terms of grief and how long the grief lasts. So with Sloane, and with Sloane, I guess I didn't want um, I didn't want people to look at her story. And, and feel like she was a victim. I, I it, For me, it was a story of a happy marriage. It was a story of the way that people judged a happy marriage. It was a story of a woman who was coming to terms with the way that things were in her marriage and what did she want and what where did that end and where did her husband's desires begin. But I think because uh, it was sex instead of dish washing dishes or vacuuming. So she's doing this sexual thing for her husband and he's doing these other things for her. But because she's doing the sexual thing, it, it's almost it, it, it just gets colored as she is a victim. And for her, sex was not, it wasn't, she she didn't, trafficking in trafficking, you know what I mean? Right, <laughs> trafficking yeah. in sexuality um, was not, was not a big deal to her. Sex was like, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm driving this car uh, eight hours so that it, the oil can get filled and I, I don't want to do this, but you know, it's, it's, I'm going to do it for my husband because he did this for me. So it was the same thing for her in a sense. And she did like it. She also enjoyed it. She also had moments when she didn't enjoy it. So it was just interesting to me. And then at the end, when I when I also towards the end of our talking for the book, she told me that story about her brother. That was when it kind of all sort of came together to me. And I think for her too, and not that, you know, what happened to her when she was a young woman was the reason she was doing this, but just in any, if actually the opposite, I think that not the opposite, but her brother asking her the question that he asks her, which was really damaging, I think is one of the reasons that she did take up with her husband and do the things that he wanted because he was giving her, he was seeing her and loving her and saying, how could somebody have done to you, that to you? So in a sense, she was paying, not paying him back, but he was there for her in a way nobody had ever been. And he made her feel loved and he made her feel worthy. So... I just saw it as a whole story of a whole human being. And and it, when you put together all of the different pieces and, and you see that with the entitlement and with the, with the money comes a great deal of other kinds of pain, uh, it's just the story of one human life. And I, I will repeat that is just a bias of mine. And I forgot about the brother situation and in the way you just explained it, that doesn't increase my empathy. And I also want to say my favorite line, uh, a paragraph from the book is from Sloan's story on page 251. 
And this is the, like, I love this, how this is written. It says, the situation with Wes resolve itself the way a bullet in the brain resolves a tumor there. His disappearance from her life had been so swift and its permanence so unimpeachable that she, would, she could barely access the pain. And soon other things began to fall into place, not quite in a positive manner, but in something resembling evolution. Sorry, I don't have my glasses on. I kind of slaughtered that. <laughs> but, um, but I thought that, that was just the way that you wrote that paragraph. I, I, I could visualize it. I could see it. Well, that's sustained, man. That, that, yeah. that was impressive yeah. that that is sustained through the whole book. And, they, and, uh, and it's, it, it was like a, to get to healing, you got to blow this tumor out of your brain with a shotgun. And I can relate. I don't to recommend that. that but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't that, but I, I could really relate to that. And I, 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 there was a lot of moments when I was reading your book that just the way that you are able to put words together, it's it's phenomenal, yeah. and they're they're memorable. You know, it's like sometimes you read a book, and I'll read a book, and two weeks later, I'm like, oh, I don't even remember that book. But this one, you know, there was a lot of really memorable lines, yeah. and then kudos to you because that's that's really difficult Thank to you. do. Um, the thing I, I thought about, the other thing I thought about with Sloan is, is her father, and with Maggie too, both of their fathers, not as yeah. much with Lena. And, you know, I, I relate to, to this especially now because I, I have a 15-month-old daughter. And um, Maggie's father and Sloan's father react differently to, to just traumatic experiences that their daughters have in their lives. Um, and I'm, we, we all love fiction on this show. I just, Percival Everett just came out with a new novel called Telephone. I started reading it the other day, and there's the fu- it's about a family, uh, mother, father, one daughter, and the father's really close with the daughter, but they get to this point where he tries to talk about this stuff, like the world she's going to have to navigate as a woman it, with desire and sexuality and the way she interacts with, with men, and like he's just, he's got nothing. Like, no matter how much mm-hmm. he loves her and how close they are, like, there's something that can't be climbed over. Mm-hmm. Um, did you, do you think that barrier is insurmountable? Particularly for a father and a daughter, but, but also just between men and women. No, I, you know, I think that, um, I think that it's difficult. I mean, uh, for my own father, he was, he, uh, you know, it's not that he loved me more than my mother did, but I definitely felt his his love was there in a in a more um, more tangible way. Uh, and I think, but I think one of the reasons for that is that mothers know their daughters in a way that fathers cannot, because they they it's not about it doesn't matter how many times how much you know you talk to your daughter you are part of her brain is not accessible to you because she's a different gender also there's some sort of thing of remaining daddy's little girl that young the daughters will not broach and i know my daughter in a way that my husband will will never really and i my father there's also this sort of you know this um you don't want to know your daughter in a sense because you don't want to know how she's going to be hurt by the world so i I think that you can I think the best thing a father can do for a daughter is you know, just be, the way that one treats other women is huge and like one's like her his wife and the way he just treats people that he passes in the street I think that's a big part of, of teaching a daughter how she should be treated in the future by someone 
Well, Lisa, we could talk about this, I think, for another couple hours, but we are unfortunately out of time on this particular oh. radio show. We've been speaking with the author, Lisa Tadeo. She is the author of Three Women. It is out now. You can get it everywhere. It's from Avid Reader Press, which is Simon & Schuster, if I'm correct on the top of my head. Yes, um, correct. Thank you so much for spending your day with us. We thank really you, appreciate it. This has been fabulous. Thank you. Uh, it was I, lovely. Yes. Well, thank you for making time also in Connecticut, which I know is a, a bucolic, wonderful dairy land. But it's very difficult <laughs> yeah. to get away from from things in that state. So thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, guys. You're it's been very a pleasure. Right, it's really. been a pleasure. Uh, next Bye. time it's Teen Movie Hell. Mike McPadden's next, I-94. You've been listening to WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM. This is Lumpen Radio. After the first time when she and her husband brought another person into the bedroom, Sloan considered what it meant that she had been willing. That beyond feeling sexually excited, she had also been charmed and experienced moments of tenderness and love between herself and her husband, between herself and the other woman. That she felt warmth even at watching her husband with the other woman, except, of course, for the several moments when she felt she might die. Was it normal to like the rest, though? She couldn't tell too many people. Perhaps, she reasoned, the people she couldn't tell were the repressed ones and she was the healthy person. But none of the books she read and none of the television shows and films she enjoyed reflected that lifestyle. There had to be an anomaly in her. Somewhere, sometimes, she must have been wicked or suffering at the hands of something untoward. She considered her own childhood, the ways in which her parents factored. Sloan describes her own father, Peter, simply as Andover, Princeton, Harvard. You'll know what I mean, she says, when I say that. She doesn't intend to boast about education or money. Her feelings about where she came from were metabolized long ago. Now they are a Chanel suit in a cold closet. Sloane could define her mother, Diane, in a few words as well, but she finds it more difficult. Blonde and prim, Diane Ford is nearly ecclesiastical in her propriety. Sloane might describe how her mother greets her after having not seen her for a long time. Diane doesn't immediately hug her daughter. She asks about the drive or the flight or comments on the weather. She motions inside to where they might be cucumber tea sandwiches and a pot of Earl Grey waiting on the kitchen counter. Diane grew up, one of four in Memphis, Tennessee, with a father who flew his own airplane and a warm and homemaking mother. At 17, Diane was driving in the car with her mother, with whom she was very close. She may have felt the way we always seem to remember feeling in moments before devastation, a sort of divine providence. Look at my long tan legs, my soft blonde hair, my body which has finally been filled to all of its edges with blood and shape. Suddenly there was a scream. There was the feeling of having been hit and the sound of squawking metal. When Diane came to, hours later, she was in a hospital bed. She cried out for her mother. A nurse came to the room to deliver the news that her mother had died in the accident. It took Diane several seconds, perhaps even a full minute, to visualize the interior of the car that morning, to remember it was she herself who had been in the driver's seat. Not too long after the funeral, shortly after the sympathy pie stopped arriving at their doorstep, her father sent her to live with friends. Diane didn't need to be told why. She knew he couldn't look at her, she who had killed his wife, the mother of his three other children, for whom he was now solely responsible. I-94 is Lumpin Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Lisa Tadeo, author of Three Women, out now from Avid, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. This episode originally aired on July 19, 2020. I-94 is a Lumpin Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. 
For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.